Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pause I Am Radio with your host, Robert Brining. Sharing stories from across the United States and around the world. To join the conversation, call 929-477-3572. That's 929-477-3572. Each week, we'll bring you our exclusive HIV scoop with Josh Robbins and your positive message from Rise Up to HIV and Kevin Maloney. Your weekly dose of hope. Pause I Am Radio. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the December 10th edition of Pause I Am Radio. I am your host, Robert Brining, coming to you live from snowy Philadelphia. That's right. Uh, we got some snow over uh, night uh, yesterday, and uh, we woke up to about four inches this morning, ice on the cars. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a nice day here in Philly, and it's starting to really look like Christmas, I guess, or, or the holiday season for once. Uh, despite uh, not doing any shopping, I kind of felt like I was in the Christmas mood a little bit. We put up the lights in the window. And the snow was flowing, so it kind of put me in the mood. We baked a cake. Uh, it, was, it was a nice uh, weekend, despite the horrific week we had. Um, I had it personally at work. So I do want to remind everybody uh, who's maybe tuning in for the first time, we are here live every Sunday uh, with a different guest each week who share their personal story with HIV, how they dealt with their diagnosis and how they moved forward, and maybe some uh, share some amazing work that they're doing at the present moment or projects that they have coming up. Um, next week, uh, we will be speaking with a friend of ours, uh, Stephen Bloodworth from Mr. Friendly Tennessee Chapter. Uh, he will be joining us. I saw him at uh, a few conferences, mostly at Positive Living and ADAP ones. Uh, he's very active and um, I'm excited to hear his story. Um, I've known him for a few years uh, throughout the conference uh, cycle, and it's good to actually sit down with him and, and hear his one-on-one story. Um, so again, that's next week, and then we're going to be taking off uh, the following two Sundays because that is going to be Christmas Eve and uh, New Year's Eve. So we will actually return on Sunday the 7th with a live show. So I'm excited about that. We're going to try to change the format up and go a little bit more uh, deeper into the stories of uh, the individuals coming on. Uh, So I'm excited about uh, the new changes coming up. So today uh, we have uh, Michael Hager coming on, um, sharing his story. And when I was going over um, his bio uh, as the intro was playing, I was looking um, at the dates and things that uh, coincided with his diagnosis. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was diagnosed in 2001, and I was 21. So I'm trying to look, and I'm like, well, wow, we're the same age. And it's it'll be kind of interesting to hear somebody who is the same age as me who got diagnosed around the same time. I was a year earlier. Um, and, and how, you know, maybe he dealt with it in a different way than I did, and, and kind of uh, to hear two sides of it, of, of the story. Uh, so I'm kind of interested to kind of compare notes and to see how um, it it is. 
So uh, I do want to take a quick break right now and go ahead and play one of our positive messages from Rise Up to HIV and Kevin Maloney. Uh, our friend Kevin is uh, back in Columbus doing well, so I'm glad to see Kevin out there. Uh, so uh, Kevin, uh, give us a call sometime if you uh, are free Sundays. We'd love to uh, catch up with you. So let's play this week's uh, positive message uh, from Joe. Hi, I was diagnosed in March of 1990, three months shy of my 21st birthday. When I went to see the doctor, he told me that my viral load was up in the millions and that my CD4 count was less than 200. Basically, gave me five years to live. Um, at this time, I basically gave up all my dreams, my hopes, and the wanting to live. But fortunately, here I am, 26 years later, I'm very healthy. So my message to you guys is to never give up, never give hope, and to keep up the fight. Yo fui diagnosticado en marzo de 1990, tres meses antes de mi 21 cumpleaños. Um, en este momento el doctor me dijo que yo tenía el barrel load en los millones y el CD4 menos de 200. Me dio cinco años de vida. En este momento yo me di por vencido y no quise hacer más por mi vida, pero aquí estoy 26 años después y mi mensaje es que nunca pierdan el deseo de vivir. Okay, see you the video. And there we have it. And we are back live. I apologize for that delay. I had a little bit of a malfunction. So um, you missed all the things that I was just speaking because I didn't realize that I was on mute. So I apologize for that, guys. Um, uh, I have our guest, Michael Hager, on today. Um, before, uh, when I was on mute, I was actually speaking about Healthline.com. Go there and check out their HIV honors. Michael, are you there with me today? Sorry about that, buddy. Yes, sir. Hey, Robert. I feel like an idiot. I'm sitting here rambling on for about like two minutes about <laughs> HIV, you know, and about stuff like that. And then I go to bring you on and I'm like, oh, crap, I'm on mute, too. So I'll have to edit that oh, out no. later. But I'm so excited to actually have you on. I was giving this big intro about how, you know, we were kind of diagnosed around the same time, year apart, and we're the same age. And it's kind of interesting to see how the, the stories would uh, possibly overlap. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm really excited to be here today and to talk to you a little bit about my story and all the stuff that I'm up to. Yeah, you're you're a busy you're a busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> There's lots to be done, right? Right, right. So so tell us a little bit um about uh what what was your life before you got to, before you were diagnosed? Like kind of give us like a little bit about what it was like and then what what made you you know, get tested. What was, what was, you know, what was the, the reason for that and, and the, the results, obviously? Yeah, sure. So um, I was diagnosed with HIV back in November of uh, 2002. I had just turned 22 and I had come out of the closet at the age of um, 19 uh, when I was almost 20. So doing the math, I didn't really have much time as, you know, an uninf uninfected, quote, normal gay young person. And you know, I became infected with HIV as um, a very young man. Um, being raised in a conservative household, I had a lot of issues with my homosexuality, and those issues prevented me from, you know, engaging in routine testing. Um, the conservative background I had also kind of prevented me from going out and doing, you know, all kinds of things like sex parties and, and whatnot, um, you know, young mm -hmm. and in college and all that. Um, so I didn't really feel like my risk was very high. 
Um, but I do have Crohn's disease as well. So as part of my regular course of treatment for um, Crohn's disease with my gastroenterologist, I went in one day and said, hey, look at this sore that I have on my side. And I had these little tiny bubbles um, on my side, and they were kind of very painful, a little itchy. Um, and it turned out that um, it was uh, shingles, a little tiny patch of shingles. So my doctor at that point um, kind of knew my background and didn't want to scare me away. He was like, ah, so I don't really know what this is. We'll, we'll figure it out, though. Let me run some tests. He took a swab of it. And then he was like, have you ever had an HIV test? <laughs> I said, no, I haven't. He's like, well, let's just do that. And, you know, he kind of like was able to – he had asked me before if I wanted one. Um, but the way that he presented it this time, I was like, that makes sense, and it's fine. Um, and, of course, I came back positive. Um, so that is more or less, um, you know, kind of what I was up to before I was diagnosed and, you know, how I was diagnosed. I, I don't really know if I have, like, much of a normal trajectory to say, you know, before my diagnosis since right. I was a very young man in college at the time trying to figure out who the heck I am, you know? Right, yeah. No, it's funny because, I, I mean, it's not funny, but it's similar because I was diagnosed, you know, at 21 in 2001. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I'm 38. I'm assuming you're the same age as I am. Um, mm -hmm. I, I came out when I was 18, 19 years old, you know, very similar. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it's just, it's just interesting how, um, how, how it hits each person differently. So where did you move after that? So then you were told you were diagnosed HIV positive. What were your thoughts? Were you educated about HIV? Um, I was I was somewhat educated about HIV, but I think that that's the the kicker with stigma, right? You know, I was had mm -hmm. much more powerful feelings about what it, what it meant to be a gay person. You know, gay being gay was new. So even though I had information and an education around HIV, um, you know, HIV prevention and and all of that, it was all very scary. Um, and when I was in high school, when I was 16, my Crohn's disease first really, really knocked me for a loop, and I was hospitalized uh, for about three weeks um, my junior year. Then my senior year, um, I, uh, you know, had a surgery and was hospitalized again, and, you know, I just kind of felt part of me. You know, it was like, this is my test in life, you know, the good Lord and, you know, the fates and whatever you believe, this is kind of like my lot, and I, it's, it's not that I should be reckless, but, you know, I, I don't think that God will challenge me. So when I got my HIV diagnosis, it was pretty earth-shattering. Um, you know, I wandered around crying for hours in the rain and chilly Boston November. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, had to take a little hiatus from my classes and the work that I was doing at the time, um, about two weeks or so. And when I came out of that dark place, um, I decided that instead of pursuing medical school, which was the trajectory I was on, that I would take a little bit of time off and learn a little bit more about HIV, the HIV-positive community, services for HIV-positive people. And when I graduated from BU, um, Boston University, in 2003, um, I started working for the city of Boston in the Boston Public Health Commission AIDS program um, <clears throat> to do just that. And my role there um, I was working with outreach workers. Um, at the time in 2003, there was a syphilis outbreak that was associated with crystal meth use and also with um, an HIV, you know, incidence spike in Boston. So I was doing um, crystal meth and STD awareness and testing um, outside the club cafe and, and other hotspots in Boston and, you know, working on the Pride Committee. 
And soon after that, um, my passion and my interest, I think, is what propelled me into a contract management position, which is, which is pretty rare. I was 24 years old, but I did have a master's degree and lots of drive and energy. Um, and I found myself managing primary wow. care, mental health, and transportation contracts across Boston. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so how did you tell your family? How was your family? Oof. Did your family deal with it? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm an open book. I, I, have, <laughs> I yeah. have a hard time. I have a hard time keeping things from people, um, especially people who know me. Like you can read it right on my face. What's going on? Um, so because yeah. of that, I actually avoided my family a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I told my brother and I told my, my little brother and my little sister first. Um, <clears throat> I told my, uh, my dad next and I told my mom last. And that's a strategic thing. One, my mom, um, you know, loves me very much. Like she loves all of her kids, like most moms do. And I right. kind of figured that she would have a really hard, she had a hard time with the gay thing. So I was like, oh man, this mm -hmm. is going to be even harder for her and, and harder for, you know, us to kind of find, find, um, hoping a way forward and all of that. Um, but the other reason why I told her last is that, you know, God bless her. She is definitely my mother and, um, you know, she looks for support. So I knew that if I told my mom about my status, my grandparents would know, my aunt and uncle would know. And it's not because my mom was, would be shaming me or anything like that. But she's like, I don't know what to do with this. And how do I, how do I continue to love and support my child? This is scary. You know, so yeah. it was an opportunity for me to kind of backdoor tell everyone. <laughs> so I was right. able to kind of work with it from there. Um, and most people in my family were really open and accepting. Um, I had, you know, the same experience when I came out as gay. Um, very, very yeah. few people had had something snide to say about it. Um, everyone was, was very good. Now, the thing that was challenging down the road was that, you know, my mom in trying to be supportive would let me know that she had a good cry with my with my grandmother about my health. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's okay for a little while. But then, you know, after after a couple of years, I kind of had to, like, educate her around, like, circles of support. That when it comes to HIV, I'm in the middle, and you should support me. And because you're supporting me, you should look to grandma and to other people to support you. But because you're supporting me, right. you should never complain about supporting me, and you should never make it seem like it's a burden or effort or anything like that to support me because that's not supportive and that's not what you're trying to do. So mm -hmm. it, it took a minute, but I was able to kind of, you know, <laughs> change the, the narrative to more of hope and forward looking rather than sad and, you know, kind of back looking. Right. No, that's, you know, that makes sense. I mean, I know the hard, my mom was actually one of the first people I told. Um, really? Uh, because at the time when I, yeah, at the time when I found out that, um, I was I was positive. I always see I always get my own story messed up. It's so funny because I think about it, like how did it work? Did I do this first? Did I do that first? Or did this happen? You know what I mean? And I and I, and I always seem to forget how it actually laid out. But I know I got I'm trying to think I got clean. My yeah I got clean. My dad passed, and then I became I became positive like six months later after my dad had passed. You know what I mean? So when I sat down to tell my mom I had a drug problem. You know what I mean? My dad was already sick. And I remember sitting down and being like, mom, you know, I really you know, think I need to get help, you know, and this and that. And she's like, oh, I thought you were going to tell me you had AIDS. And I remember that. And it was like a, she thought I was like going to tell her that news. And little did I know that, you know, six months later, I would be really sitting down and telling her that same news that she was afraid of. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? But she was at the time, my only support, I'm a big mama's boy. 
I'm the only son, you know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I am a mama. Did that, did that prepare her? Did that did that help prepare her? Like in you know having one tough conversation and then having the other one on his heels, or? Yeah, I think just like and and, and during the process of me getting clean and staying clean, and then my dad passing and kind of just having to be that support for everyone, that man of the house, you know what I mean? Because I have two sisters. Yes. So I have to be that man of the family. It kind of, um, I guess it kind of softened the blow a little bit and it, and it allowed her to be like, well, it is what it is. And yeah. she didn't like the fact yeah. that I shot it from the rooftops, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so she's okay with that now. Very, were you very open publicly right away with your status? Oh, no, no. I didn't come out until like 2005 publicly. Yeah. I like, I, I had this interesting thing where, um, because I had really good experiences in telling you know, I've I've always been this way in terms of doing probably too much. And when I was in school and I had my HIV diagnosis, I was a resident assistant on a pre-medical floor. I was working in the computer lab. I was working at um, an institute called Healthcare for All, which ended up passing Health Reform of 2006 in Massachusetts, which became the Affordable Care Act. Um, I was um, part of an anonymous peer listening hotline for supportive services. I was the president of an honor society. I was beginning my master's thesis. Um, and I was um, kind of putting together a little bit of a research project. Um, in addition to taking, you know, all graduate level courses for my political science degree and, and also trying to wrap up my pre-medical stuff. And, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, that's the reason why I kind of took those two weeks. I was like, whoa, overload. Yeah. I need some me time here. And it was so amazing the, the response I got from my professors and from my employers and even the places where I volunteered and did an internship. Um, I did let go of a few of the activities, like the listening hotline. I was like, I'm not in a position to give other people advice when I'm you know, right. crying and, you know, before bed and putting plus signs on my hands. <laughs> you know, like maybe someone else should be helping others who are in crisis since I'm kind of, you know, traumatized myself at the moment. Um, but yeah, right. really only one professor gave me a hard time with that. And so, you know, for me, um, it's not like I was shouting it from the rooftops at first and in dating, the, the disclosure thing was really, really tough, especially as a youngster to kind of, you know, get yeah. over and, and that maturity in terms of what it means to, to, to own who you are, to love who you are, and mm. to be able to accept rejection and not to take that kind of thing personally and as, you know, to further stigmatize, that was really tough. But as far as like my employment yeah. was concerned, um, it was something that I noticed right away working as a youngster in the city of Boston was that there were plenty of people who were positive working alongside me, but no one was open. And at first, there was a little bit of chafing almost with my being very open about my status, like talking about it in meetings, talking about it in public, talking about it, you know, for, you know, many different in many different ways. Um, but then over time, mm -hmm. people really, really began to value that and would come up to me privately and tell me their stories and how glad yeah. they were that they had someone that they were working with who could champion them in a way that they didn't think that they could champion themselves. Um, and the stories and the connection and the bonding that happened through that was so, so powerful. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, whenever I started a new job, when, when I moved to D.C. and was the director of quality for three years at Whitman Walker, there was that same kind of process where at first it was chafy, and then over time people came to me and let me know that they valued my being out. Um, my, one of my supervisors, yeah. when I took my role in New York State, 
you know, even within the AIDS Institute, cautioned me and said, you can't be open about your status. You're going to make people uncomfortable. And I pretty much told him to go, you know, <laughs> sit on something. Because yeah. at the end of the day, this, this is my story. And this is my truth. And my truth and my story mm. doesn't necessarily negate or make anyone else's story or anyone else's truth less important. But, you know, I, I, I did note over time, too, even in that setting where I was told specifically not to disclose, um, that, you know, my disclosure wound up creating, again, that same pattern of bonding and appreciation, you know, um, very quiet, you know, kind of after hours, you know, chats in a coffee shop or at a bar about, you know, what happened with them in their lives. And, you know, um, it's very gratifying. Yeah, I mean, that's the power of telling stories. I mean, that's why we have the radio show. You know, you find similarities. Maybe they're not the one who's able to be strong enough to say it or to live like that, but they can see it and be inspired by you and then become that. And, I mean, that's happened many times that I saw, you know, from individuals. Like, I came out to my soccer team in a blog, and I was like, look, this is my story. This is, you know, how it is and now. This is what I'm doing. And I had, like you said, at practice or after games or, you know, out at the bar afterwards, we'd be talking, and they'd be like, you know, I'm also HIV positive, but, you know, I don't tell anybody, but, you know, thank you for doing what you're doing. And it's just, you know, there's, like you said, those little conversations that you don't expect. It's like, that's, you know, that's why we do it. <laughs> it's so important. You know, we yeah. do it for that, for the person without the voice. Yes. My mom always told me that the most important thing in life is people, and the essence of people is their story. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's really important to kind of, you know, get to know people on that level. Um, I feel like there's so much pressure to keep things light and airy to keep things at the what's on TV, what sport team do you follow kind of level. But, you know, I really feel that that's one of the, the ills in our society at the moment is that, you know, people, people don't seek that deeper connection and they don't seek that deeper level. Um, and I think that when they're first confronted with it, sometimes there's like a, ah, that's uncomfortable. Why are you so in my face? And it's like, it's not in your face. I guess you you know, you can choose to not listen to me, and I'm, but I'm not putting it in your face just by sharing my story, you know? And over time, yeah. over time, how that changes. It's it's neat. Yeah, and a part of time, you know, doing that, making people feel uncomfortable is needed so they can start to feel comfortable. You know what I mean? It kind of starts a chain yeah. reaction. Yes, and conversation, it always starts conversation. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. listen, Michael, let's take a quick break right now. Sure. I want to take a quick break, and I just want to um, head over to uh, Josh Robbins and hear this week's HIV scoop. So we'll be right back with Michael in about three minutes. This Thanks. is the all-new HIV scoop with Josh Robbins, exclusively for Pause I Am Radio. This week's buzzworthy sexual health news in under two minutes. Here's Josh Robbins with this week's HIV scoop. <laughs> Don't y'all love that announcer voice? It makes me feel like I'm like running onto the stage or like running through one of those banners, the punch banners, onto the field. It's like, here's Josh Robbins. Ah. <laughs> uh, anyway, here is your HIV scoop this week. Robert, I just want to say, how you doing? I love you, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> All right. 19% uh, of men that think that they are HIV negative and probably have told people they're HIV negative, 19% of those have never even been tested for HIV, 
According to a new survey out from GMFA, this is insane that 19% of men, that's almost like one in five, okay, almost 20%, but 19% of men who say that they're HIV negative have never even been tested for HIV. According to a new survey result out from GMFA, this is part of their survey, How Risky Am I Tool, that they really did all year long. Uh, they surveyed 9,000 gay and bisexual men throughout the year. It just blows my mind. It just literally blows my mind. So moving right along. Y'all, we need to help someone who is being detained at the El Paso Processing Center of Immigration and Custom Enforcement, ICE. We've heard a lot of stories about this, but we have right now an HIV-positive asylum seeker who is now on hunger strike to demand improved medical care and his release from detention. So what's his name? It's Jose Enrique Rodriguez-Mendoza. He's a gay man who is living with HIV, and he has been detained by ICE there in El Paso for seven months in solitary confinement. ICE denied him proper medical care and treatment for two months. So he began his hunger strike on World AIDS Day, Friday, December the 1st, because he believes this is the only way that the outside world will find out his story and he can be heard. He's filed over 25 requests to meet with ICE so he can make his case known and make his case to them on why he should be released, and they've denied him. Well, now it's our turn to step up and force this. This really pisses me off. I'm Josh Robbins. This is your HIV Scoop. And you have it. Thank you, Josh Robbins. And for more information on Josh, you can go to his website, imstilljosh.com. So that's crazy. The first story that he was talking about, one in five uh, gay and bisexual men who say they are HIV negative have not been tested. What are your thoughts on that, Michael? Wow. It's it's not a surprise. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of the psychological process I was talking about myself going through at the beginning, you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm not taking that many risks and you know, it's it's fine and you know, I I know that I'm I'm not positive, so I'll just say that I'm negative. Or I mean it could be something else. It, it's it's tragic. Um and I think that it's something that we should work harder on to make sure that people do get tested and they see the value in that. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, are don't get it. Don't get, don't get tested because of stigma, um, and I know that's one of the I think one of the the big reasons why. I know for me, I had the Superman complex. It, it, that wouldn't happen to me. You know, it doesn't happen mm-hmm. to somebody like me. That's something you just see on TV. You know what I mean, or, or hear about in the newspaper or the internet. So mm-hmm. it's crazy. So listen, let's yeah. talk about some of the things that um, some things that you're working on right now. Like let's talk about sure. uh, Hager Health. Yeah, absolutely. I started a new consultancy um, in September um, called Hager Health, and really what I'm seeking to do um, is to work on data-to-care systems. So that's the idea that you have this health record, you know, you go to the doctor, you talk to your doctor, and the doctor is looking at the computer, type, type, typing away, putting all this stuff in. Sometimes if you have a doctor who's a really good typist, they'll, they'll look at you while they're type, type, typing away. But at the end of the day, there's all this rich information about us um, that, you know, um, is in these health records. So how do we use the information in the health records in a way that, um, you know, protects anonymity and confidentiality, of course, of individuals, but seeks to improve overall community health and population health? 
Um, so there's a number of different methods and systems around that. And one of my favorite ones um, is peer learning. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a big believer in, you know, the power of people and their stories. And so, you know, the idea that you can bring together disparate groups of policymakers, providers, and consumers from various uh, backgrounds or geographic settings to attack a problem and to think about, you know, why why the data shows what it is. Um, you know, moving to the next steps, thinking about disparities. Why do certain groups experience disparities in, in testing linkage to care, retention in care, and, and viral suppression, um, and all of that. So um, I'm working with a number of different uh, entities right now around learning collaboratives. <clears throat> um, there is a four-year learning collaborative um, that I'm part of a team in New Jersey that is seeking to integrate behavioral health into primary care. It's been a hot topic for a long time, but as you mentioned, Robert, uh, stigma continues to be one of our biggest uh, bugaboos in terms of HIV. And stigma affects right. not only HIV, but behavioral health. If people have substance use issues or you know, depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it's, it's really challenging sometimes to be able to you know, follow through on a treatment plan or you know, to prioritize that treatment plan in the face of other things that are happening in, in one's life. So you know, really excited to, to look at that over, over the next four years in, in New Jersey and to see if there's not a model that we can't <clears throat> make a big difference across the entire American medical system. Um, wow. Other than that, I'm working with a, a couple of other states on specific quality of care projects as it relates to um, people um, living with HIV um, in their states. Um, one is uh, Virginia. Um, I am uh, working with um, my mentor, Lori DiLorenzo, who is just extraordinary and a wonderful, passionate, brilliant woman um, who's been involved in HIV service um, you know, consulting since the early 90s. Um, and so I'm working with her in Virginia, I'm working with her in Indiana, um, and then I'm stirring a couple of other pots um, nationally and internationally on stigma as well. Um, there's a lot of great work that's happened in the stigma space in the last several years. Um, and for those of you yeah. who um, are interested in learning more, um, I would recommend checking out the Health Policy Project, healthpolicyproject.org, and also the People Living with HIV Stigma Index, which is stigmaindex.org. The first one is looking at stigma, um, stigmatizing behaviors and attitudes of medical providers and the medical system that might affect people living with HIV um, that prevents them from testing, remaining in care, or um, achieving viral suppression. Um, and the second one is a survey system that is developed of, by, and for people living with HIV um, to identify what it is within specific communities or subgroups that is the driving force behind stigma to see if there can't be interventions around how to remove those stigmas. And I should say that the Health Policy Project has an evidence base as well, and that um, it's also a survey system, and the survey system um, is evidence-based, and deficiencies that are identified um, also have interventions that are evidence-based off the shelf, just included in the Health Policy Project. So both of these are really great ways to look at stigma from different lenses, from, from the healthcare community going into consumers and that interaction, but also just the feelings that we have as people living with HIV about our condition and ourselves and our lives, and what we can do to improve that overall and help everybody. Um, these are these are really two of the main points that I've been trying to you know focus on and elucidate within um, within my work in Hager Health. Yeah, well, I'm definitely going to check these out. I've never heard of either one of these websites. So you said it's um, uh, healthpolicyproject.org and right. Yep. 
and, and SigmaIndex.com. SigmaIndex.com. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, check yeah. them out and have to tweet them out and show them people. That's incredible. So tell me, what do you do with uh, uh, Impact New York? I know there's a, there's a group of uh, it, there's a group here in Philly, and uh, I'm a part of it. I, I don't do anything directly with them. I, I, I am in the group on Facebook, but I, I watch it and I see what's going on. So share a little bit about what that is. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. This is one of my biggest passions. Um, so I mentioned before, <clears throat> I was young when I was diagnosed with HIV, and I went through two weeks of a really hard time. Um, I also continued to struggle for a number of years, actually, about disclosure. And I don't think that that's atypical. I think that a lot of people have that. Um, when I moved to D.C., yeah. I had to find a new medical provider. Um, there were a couple times when I had issues with medication. and You know, I, I just felt why isn't there a place for me to talk to people as equals that's that's not clinical i know that i know that a support group feels good and natural for many people but it's never quite resonated with me and i'm more of those like uh, i want right. to have my friends kind of guys and if i have a question i can go to my friends so impact mm -hmm. nyc basically is for lack of a better term a fraternity of gay men living with hiv um it's not a new concept. It's something that goes all the way back to the beginning of HIV. If you think about, you know, really, really tragic times with, um, you know, suicide parties and, and stuff like that. Um, but over time, as, as you know, we, we had new medicines, um, our uh, longevity has improved and, and all of that, um, we don't have to focus on that anymore. Um, instead, it's a celebration of life and a celebration of who we are as individuals and, and all of that. Um, when I when I moved to D.C., um, I did find a group called Positive Alliance that was there um, that was kind of building off of some of um, the roots of some of these older projects and, um, and groups. And uh, uh, when I moved to New York, I had the opportunity to get involved with, um, with the group here, which became Impact NYC. And really what we are is we're an opportunity for um, sexually intelligent um, men who are negative and HIV positive people to uh, support each other in a non-clinical, informal way, you know, just like any other group of folks. Hey, I need um, a doctor. I had this weird experience with a dentist. You know, what would you do? Or, you know, I think that someone is trying to get me out of my housing because they found out my status. What do I do? Um, <clears throat> together, we have thousands of years of lived experience, you know, managing our yeah. HIV and, and, um, and um, our lives. And I think that that is one of the most important resources that we offer in Impact NYC um, and in the other chapters around the country. As you mentioned, there's Impact Philly. And then there's similar organizations in other cities. There's Hope DC in DC. That's hopedc.org. Yeah. There's UB2 in Boston. Um, there is Thrive Tribe in LA. And, and the list goes on. Um, there's Sin Colorado and in yeah. Denver. So um, I, I really see I really see Impact NYC as kind of uh, filling that space. Now that's that is just the online you know virtual supportive piece of it. But we also do have a number right. of activities that seek to connect people on personal levels too in a meaningful way. Um, we have happy hours, dinners, brunches. Uh, we have hikes. We have um, trips to see our brothers in Philly and in Boston. Um, we've met our brothers in Philly in. Um, Asbury Park, and we've met our brothers in Boston and Fire Island, um, and it just is a way to kind of 
do something fun and different that um, gets you to meet other people. In addition to the nightlife stuff and the travel stuff, we also have activities that are focused on wellness, and we have activities. Um, I'm trying to put together a new HIV ministry right now that's interfaith. Nice. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I attended support groups and I and you know I get a lot out of it, but it seemed. It was more, I got more out of my online support group, you know what I mean? And then when you did meet them, whether they were local or not, you know what I mean? It was, it was special. It wasn't just like um, going to a meeting, you know what I mean? It was something different, getting that That's support right. and support so important. So it was right. for you. And, and you are a busy man. People. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my boyfriend isn't always very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how do you find time for him? You know, one of the questions that people are tweeting at me, they're asking, um, are, is my single? You know, I mean, of course, I already know that you're not. So I'm like, no, you know, I'm not going to bring that up. But since you just brought up your boyfriend, I figured I'd spit it out there that no, he is not single. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. People no, are I was crazy. single for a great many years. Um, and I was lucky this one snatched me up a couple years ago. <laughs> no, that's good. It's always good to see uh, people happy, you know. And and I get that from when I look at you, your pictures online and, and things like that. You seem to be a very happy person. Oh, uh, thanks. I, you know, <laughs> life is short. Life is short. And um, when, when I had that situation, when I told you earlier I was 16 when I first had my problem with Crohn's disease. Um, the doctors actually told my parents that I might not survive through the night. Um, it was it was a wow. really, really hard time for me. You know, it was extraordinarily painful. I wasn't able to eat or go to school. I, I had, like, you know, stopped going to school for almost two full quarters before I was hospitalized. Um, so for me, like, that's part of my mantra. I'm, I'm a big believer in mantras, you know, and smell the roses was an important one in that period. Yeah. And um, when I was diagnosed with HIV, once I got out of that dark place, you know, I, my mantra shifted to remember the roses, you know. I did a lot mm -hmm. of different things that were special and kind of connected me with life. Wow, I'm getting emotional talking about it. <laughs> but, you know, like uh -huh. things that so, are special to me, you know, and then I remembered them when I was down. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Does the, the, the Crohn's and the HIV, do they kind of, uh, does, do they affect one another or? They're antagonistic, that... actually. Yeah, it's weird. It's antagonistic because Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disorder. Um, it's the product of mm -hmm. having a hyperimmune, um, uh, uh, you know, t too strong of an immune system. So um, as HIV, you know, if I wasn't treated, HIV would, you know, attack my immune system and my Crohn's disease would likely, the symptoms would lessen until it get to the point where, of course, the gastrointestinal distress that's natural, you know, with um, mm -hmm. late course untreated HIV would, would, would kick in. But, you know, um, in the end, the, the funny thing is in the end, like, you know, with the current state of the science, Crohn's disease is far more of a threat to my, you know, day-to-day -day health and also yeah. my longevity than the HIV is, which is which is neat to see how far that's come in the time that I've been positive for the last yes, 15 it is. years. Yeah. Yes, and it's good to see that we're alive to see that happen. So let me uh, leave you with friend. this. We're down to the last few, right? We're down to the last few minutes. Um, you did do stuff with uh, Brotherhood Retreats, right? Yes. Is that something that you still yes. do or you don't do? Or if you want to talk quickly, they're, like we have a couple wonderful. minutes left. So. Of course, yes. So as I mentioned um, a little bit, I'm a very spiritual person. And I feel like, you know, sometimes that really 
uh, it can be it can be uncomfortable. They're kind of clunky feeling or weird to like really open up your heart in front of others and start digging around and you're all digging around and smiling at each other. Like it's kind of like awkward, right. but it's so <laughs> helpful. It's so helpful. You learn so much about yourself and you learn so much about, you know, how you really feel about yourself and the world and your place in it when you do that kind of stuff. And um I never yeah. I never worked for for them. Um but I definitely I definitely um have provided a lot of um support to them. Um, you know, a little bit of financial support as an organization, um, right. but definitely a ton of personal support in terms of trying to get the word out about this amazing program and the amazing class that runs it um, and, and, and all of that. I just I, – I, there's so much value to be had in, you know, kind of getting uncomfortable and, and getting in there and getting elbows deep and in the muck that's inside of yourself and, and bringing, making sense of that and bringing it to order and, and becoming okay with it. You know, so, you know, for me, that's that's the main reason I also, you know, do a lot of other stuff with my other brothers um, who, you know, as you know, people living with HIV wear, wear many hats and, you know, not many people living with HIV are very open about it. So, of course, there are people that run organizations and run other charities and run businesses who are positive. So a large part of what impact does as well is tries to connect other HIV, connect HIV positive people with HIV positive businesses. Because that way, it's another level of support that we can offer each other, and it's it's really meaningful and special. I think when we can do that, you know, um, class awesome. class himself isn't class himself, um, you know, hasn't disclosed you know his status to me. So I don't think I don't think he is positive. But like at the end of the day, like I, th- what he does for our community is so important. I am one hundred percent behind mm-hmm. him and treat him the same way I would treat any of my other brothers. Yeah, yeah, I've actually attended it um, this past uh, summer, and it was an amazing experience. Um, class was on. We had Juan, who came on and shared his story. Yes. Um, so it was really, uh, it was really awesome. So uh, listen, Michael, I was so glad to have you come on, and I can't wait to finally cross paths at some point with you. Um, if I ever get up to New York, I'll let you know, and maybe um, we can find a way to to go to dinner or something, or grab coffee, or just say hello, some have a selfie. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. You're an inspiration, Robert, and I really very much admire you and look forward to the time that we can meet in person someday. And, you know, I'll return the favor next time I head down to Philly. You know, I'll give you some brotherly love. (laughs) It sounds good. It sounds good. And I hope you and your. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, everybody, All right, have- for more information on the show, you guys can go to posimeradio.com. For more information on our guest, uh, you can go ahead to our website as well. There's links there for him. Uh, thank you, Michael, for hanging out with me for the hour. It's been great. Again, next week, December 10th, we will be returning with Stephen Bloodworth. And this is this week's uh, Dose of Hope. So thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Pause I Am Radio, your dose of hope. Connect with the show at pauseiamradio.com or on social media, and we'll see you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.